Hello, fans. It's time for your audio Sunday dinner with the Sopranos podcast. And we are here for episode two of season two. Non ti scordare me. Or don't forget me in English. When the last one dies, it signals the beginning of the last stretch for us. That's a quote by the Reverend James Jr. in the second episode of season two of The Sopranos, titled Do Not Resuscitate. This episode was written by the great Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess, along with Frank Ranzulli, and was directed by Martin Brussel. Episode two, we're getting into it here. Do not resuscitate. We got a couple different things going on here. Tony is consuming what remains of Junior's crew. We have a brawl with the Joint Fitters Union, a controversy, a kerfuffle, as it were. And uh, the two biggest schemers on the show are scheming against each other, it seems. We're going to get into it. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we're going to break this one down. Do not resuscitate. Second episode, season two. Another solid outing after a really fantastic opening. What are your initial thoughts? Let's go around the the gamut here. This episode is pretty powerful for me for a number of reasons. One is that the scheme that is being run here and the terms of it are particularly compelling and also pretty sad yeah for me oh it's 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 gross it makes me want to take a shower exactly (laughs) and i think related to that as well as the relationships that are being played out here is what's happening with tony and uncle jr in particular this episode thematically to me is about loyalty it's about faith and it's about family and i i'd say particularly kind of picking up on an important theme or question in the first season is our elders and in some way what we do with them, how we contextualize them, and also what we do as they get sick and sadly deteriorate. And so particularly with Junior and Tony and the complexity of their relationship and the way it plays out, to me is really the thread in this episode with other versions I'd say essentially of that same dynamic. Bobby Bacilieri being something of a goofy figure, but also a son in some way to Junior, or the the image of the son who's there to help him. As you said, the two best schemers, Janice and Livia, and that question, and how it's played out with these guest starring characters, the Reverend James Junior and his father, and what that brings up in terms of loyalty, faith, family, is an episode, it has a light touch. There are hilarious moments, but I felt sad at a lot of times in this episode, mm-hmm. and I was moved. Yeah. Jordan? Yeah, Do Not Resuscitate brings back uh, one of our most enduring universal themes from the first uh, season, which is this idea that things in the present are not as good as things were, and also kind of living in the shadow of your elders and those that came before you and having to carry on their legacy in a world in which standards and values are declining. So we see this revisited in not only Tony's relationship with Livia, but Janice's relationship with her, and then as as Paul very, very eloquently just said, in, uh, you know, we we have a couple of relationships between surrogate fathers and sons where we have... um, 
Bacala and Junior, you have Tony and Junior, we have uh, Reverend James and his son, and we see that the new generation is may- maybe not corrupted, but they are different, and I think perhaps they are the worst for it. It's also a very sentimentally touchy episode for Tony, uh, touchy and, ch- and touching, uh, because he has now has to reckon with these two that he's closed his heart to junior and livia and realizes that it's it's not that simple that the door perhaps doesn't close that he has to keep it open very well said i agree on all fronts there's a lot of rich theme and this idea of elder old generation new generation how we perceive them how they perceive what's going on and deception a lot of scheming uh it's good there's a lot going on here on what could on the surface be considered a quote-unquote slower episode of, of the sopranos there's still a lot of very interesting and compelling things happen let's start with uh, tony and jr they open the episode we get their meeting in prison i'm not sure if it's clear if this is their first meeting since the uh the war at the end of season one but it's definitely um an intense uh little meet up here and uh, yeah Let's talk about Tony and, J- and Junior's uh, relationship in this episode. I I was not really loving the narrative that Junior was pushing that Livia is a sick woman. I don't know that he believes that, and I don't know how he can expect Tony to believe that. But it's kind of like, it's kind of like Junior is almost subtextually presenting it as, "Look, this is the lie we're going to have to tell ourselves to live with the horrible truth." Mm. So let's both pretend that she's out of her fucking head. And neither one of us will have to really cope with the things that we did in sound mind, you know, in terms of really all the ugly business that unfortunately is all true. Uh, So Junior has kind of, in my opinion, offered this lie. Look, Mm. she's a sick woman. Let's both you and I agree to say she's a sick woman. We have to put on this face. We have to put this face on it to get it to be digestible by other people. And Tony initially is not going for it. Absolutely. That that's 100% correct and it's kind of illustrated in these two scenes Tony has with Junior where he meets him in prison and they kind of get started on that but they can't really say too much cuz of the setting and these motherless fucks record everything. Use of the word motherless is very appropriate to Junior but it's also no coincidence in an episode where Tony says she's dead to me about his own mother maybe four or five times. <laughs> then they have the conversation later on in the doctor's office. He's got a nice little setup here with Dr. Shrek uh, where he lets him use the office. Uh, Marty Shrek's kid, whoever the fuck Marty Shrek was. And uh, <laughs> and they, um, they're, they're kind of hashing it out. And this scene is really where they get to the heart of the matter and start using, you know, nobody played me. You know, Junior's just in self-preservation style denial here about what happened in in season one and tony calls him on that and then um you know junior brings it back home these rumors floating around about you and so yeah what what what's what do you think of all this paul well as jordan mentioned in that first scene we're dealing with maybe not the truth but rather what we have to agree to be the truth and It also sets up nicely right away that loyalty is a complicated thing, as is trust in this world, because these characters certainly don't trust each other anymore. But the first thing that Junior says suggests that there is a greater threat. I'll essentially that there's people outside of their purview who want to do both of them harm, and these are the ways in which they're both vulnerable. 
And then he brings it back to that same question in the doctor's office later on. And to bring it back to something Jordan said when we recorded the last episode, there's an omerta thing here. You talk, you die. Yeah. So they have to control what is being said about the both of them. And it also brings up a theme in this episode to me about our elders, about the past generation, and things that have happened in the past. There's a lot of stuff about bringing things up, resuscitating them. Mm. And the reaction is usually, do not do that. Tony let sleeping says, dogs lie. Let right? sleeping dogs lie. Yep. You let one dog still barking. The black joint fitters are singing an old song. The stuff about Jewish people being persecuted is old stuff. It's like, let's avoid that. Yeah. But it comes back. <laughs> so the scene in particular, this first scene with them meeting at the prison... I thought nicely set up how complex the questions of trust and loyalty are and will be in this episode. I want to ask a question. I have thoughts on this. I have an answer, but I want to see what you guys say. I think we're going to get some interesting answers to this question. But it was something that my wife and I talked about when watching the episode in preparation for this podcast. Why... Is Tony able to make, and when I say peace, I mean a peace of sorts, because he's won, and he's taking over Junior's operation, leaving him, just allowing him to exist on, quote, subsistence level. But why is Tony able to make a peace with Junior and not Livia? Oh, I think it might just be something visceral there. I mean, uh, Junior is an important man in his life, that's his uncle, and in some ways a surrogate father, but... Livia is his mother. How do you ever get over your own mother attempting to have you uh, killed? I think it's so painful for him him to even think about, he must just pretend that she is dead. I don't really know that he's forgiven Junior. I, I think the piece that gets brokered here is, is a lot to do with um, that he needs Junior to still at least appear as if he is the boss of the family and still be a kind of a lightning rod. Yes. But uh, I, I'm going to go back on the thing I literally just said. We see that Tony is so wounded in this situation and so weak that ultimately he's going to leave a little bit of an opening for Junior and I think for Olivia by the end of this episode. Yes, I think that's well said. And I think that the question is an interesting one. If I could respond a bit flippantly, I think that he doesn't really forgive either of them. Yeah. And his making peace with Junior, while not the same as making peace with Livia, is making peace with the good son concept and sense of himself as best he can. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, Chris, more than once during the first season that Tony, in spite of his other flaws, is a good son. And that finally was blasted apart in the last episode. And I think he is regaining, trying to regain, some of that in this episode in reconciling with Junior, or at least placing an investment in his being well taken care of. Even though I do think part of it is self-interested, both in keeping Junior there as the puppet leader, and Junior has to stay alive to him, even though his mother is dead to him, because if all the elders are dead, then Tony is the elder. Very well said. Very well said. Interesting little acting or writing thing that I thought was just, a, again, one of these little touches that separate The Sopranos from many of the other shows. I, I like this idea that they have this uh, guy, Freddie Capuano, who runs Green Grove. <laughs> 
and he's blabbing about Tony fluffing up his mother's pillow for a nice long sleep. And what a cool, funny way. I don't know if this was a Dominic Chianese choice or if this was in the script, but what a way to make it memorable so that you know late, because we've never met the, or even seen this Freddy Capuano guy in the show. He's just the guy who owns Green Grove. That's what we're told in the scene. And Junior refers to him as Pooh, that hairpiece motherfucker. Just spits. <laughs> and it's such a distinctly, it's such a distinct way of delivering that information that when we see the cop discover this car with a hairpiece next to it, you know, you know immediately, oh, yeah. oh, okay, they got this guy. <laughs> so just very creative and cool way to get across who this person is. And, you know, I just really like that. That's a very They suspect cool... foul play. It's not safe. <laughs> very funny i also thought that that that's a really nice reading chris and it also creates a bit of a playful and funny sense around what has presumably been this murder but that murder is presumably tony taking fairly extreme measures to protect the secrets and to some degree the the public perception of he himself, his mother, and his uncle. So again, even though loyalty, trust has been tested, obliterated, we're seeing, I think, the beginnings of this investment in particularly Junior in this episode. And when you were saying that, I'm reminded of the uh, one of the other plot lines in this episode, the secrets and um, that we ultimately come to find out about the Reverend Junior versus the Reverend Senior. And the Reverend Junior must be doing quite a bit of reputation management of his own to stay in good standing with his father. I really like this scene to kind of dip into that story for a moment. I really like, and we'll get into it from the from the top down. But I really like this scene when Tony goes to see the Reverend James Senior. I just think it's a well written scene. It's very interesting. Yeah, a lot of great lines there. Uh, Only shit in the Bible came out of Moses' ass when uh, Pharaoh's ass when Moses parted the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. Great line. And Tony's just kind of getting a sense of this guy. And uh, he's he's pure. He believes this stuff. You know, he's not in it for anything other than the legitimacy of the cause. You know, he's kind of the face of this. But beneath that is the corruption of the son and the Reverend Junior and how he is completely exploiting this cause, his father's image, and this unfortunate racial dynamic within the joint fitters union to uh, for his own personal gain and these no-show jobs uh, for those of you out there by the way who don't um, have any experience with the mob what that is is a no-show job is a job that the mob is able to get paid for a, a position on the payroll for a job that doesn't actually exist essentially means uh, you're getting paid to do nothing by the union so that's that's what that's all about. So and that's that's the currency that they're playing with here. But yeah, let's talk about this uh, Massaron construction joint fitters storyline because it's kind of a middle thread for all of these other plots. So Ma- Massaron could be you know it could be any number of uh, businesses in the tri-state area that have similar names and have a similar way of operating. This is still true twenty years later. These are businesses predominantly run by. Um, Italian-American families that uh, have a a lot of uh, white employees. Uh, We're still having a struggle with some uh, issues of equality there. They refer to the old song of the uh, black population in New Jersey trying to get union jobs and to to get 
union wages, union rights, uh, and, and feeling like they've been kind of cut out of all that. And uh, Chris, as you nicely illustrated, we, we come to find out that their cause is being sort of undercut by the Reverend James Jr., who basically is in on the whole scheme with Tony. And yeah, there's there's a, a seediness to that. Uh, there is also... That, that scene was really complicated for me because there was almost a little bit of a pleasure in seeing it. That's not to say that I was happy that this was happening. Uh, that's to say that I was happy that the younger generation could see eye to eye where perhaps Tony would not have been able to see eye to eye with the Reverend James Sr. Um, he mm. merely had respect for that man, and it was a polite, respectful encounter, but he realized this is, this is not the way things are anymore. Um, Reverend James Jr. says, you know, how do you think my people would feel if they knew I was, I was lining my pockets with their blood, which is qu- quite a line. And I wonder if Tony ever feels that way about the people that he exploits. Uh, I think we're supposed to take these two as parallel characters. Mm. It's a very interesting scene as, <clears throat> later on, not just because it's a reveal scene. And for those of you, for, for those watching who may not have seen that twist coming, that the Reverend Jr. is in on it and it's all just a big scam to line their pockets with Jack Mazarone's money and these no-show jobs, but that these are two kind of parallel characters in their own universe, and they're kind of, in a very twisted, reverse way, they're working together as a black man and a white man in New Jersey making money with each other while exploiting the lack of that at the lower levels. It's just kind of an interesting dynamic there. Yes, this whole storyline, again, I think complicates the questions of fidelity, faith, trust, and indeed even family. It doesn't seem like an accident that in this episode it's referenced that both Uncle Junior and the Reverend James Sr. fought in the Second World War. Right. But Reverend James never stopped, at least from his own perspective, fighting the war against tyranny. He came home and said, by God, let them do right by us, us meeting black Americans, black veterans, let them do right by us this time. But Junior became a gangster, yeah. you know, and so that's what we're seeing play out to keep it with the image of faith and religion. We're dealing with prodigal children in this respect, including with Janice. And if I could just try to link these stories together a bit, there's a storyline, I'm sure we'll talk about it in more detail with Janice going to visit Livia and the scam that she's running. And it reminded me of Down Neck in season one when we discussed that episode, AJ going to see the grandmother. Jordan mentioned that perhaps even Livia's dark instincts serve her well because she seems to know, perhaps even before Tony does, that he's going to therapy because of who his parents were, right? particularly who his mother is. And in this episode, sure enough... I think Livia knows even before Janice knows that Janice wants her house. Yeah. That Janice, part of her, wants her dead. And that's her dark instinct ferreting out what her prodigal child scam is. The Reverend James Sr. is fundamentally a decent and honest man. He's 83 years old. He's still got his teeth. There's nothing false about this guy. It never occurred to him, probably, that his son was running this scam. That's the gut punch to me at the end and even it was even an investment on his son's part to protect his dad's faith Mm. yeah he would never proved he wouldn't want his dad to know yeah that's a great take paul i didn't catch the teeth that was great Mm. very good 
Yeah, I agree. I didn't catch that either. Awesome. Some new characters here, and we'll use these as ways to discuss uh, some of these various plot lines. First appearance of Bobby Baclieri, Bobby Bacala, <laughs> in a hilarious Bacala. scene. Bacala. This is a, you know, again, no spoilers here, but this is a beloved Sopranos character that we are now getting our first meeting, and what a meeting it is. To, uh, to, for those of you who have seen the actor Steve Sharipa before, um, and by the way, he and Michael Perioli, not to pitch our competitors, but quote-unquote competitors. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, um, you know, they run their own Sopranos podcast, and it's quite good. It's very different than this. They they go into a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, and, and I definitely recommend checking that out. But you've seen Steve Sharipa. He's a big guy, but he's quite big in this episode. He is wearing a fat pack. I do know that. He is wearing it for his belly. His belly is pronounced... Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. He... he Again, no spoilers, but there is a point in the show where the fat pack gets removed. But he is they made him a bit more bulbous in the tummy than he actually was. And they have this first scene because uh, Tony is ripping on him and talking down to him. I really like this scene. Bobby seems like such a nice guy off the bat. You know, I inherited you and you, you know, I always <laughs> liked you. You got no reason to talk to me this way. Uh, and Tony's like, bullshit, but we'll assume you do now. And, uh, yeah, so thoughts on this first scene with Bobby Bacala and Tony kind of delivering the message of Junior's role in the family going forward to this character. Instantly likable character. You instantly want more of Bobby Bacala. They got the right man for the job. That's a well-written, very sweet character. Yep. You just just want more of him. He's funny, uh, I think quite charming. And there's a specific sort of quality to his intelligence where he purports to be a character of low intelligence but he's actually quite a wise character it seems so it's interesting to hear his take on things even as tony berates him as tony berates uh everybody also i want to bring this up it's funny that tony calls him fat like constantly even from this first episode oh yeah um you know you know, uh, I, I think you should get invested in salad is, is a hilarious, uh, you know, uh, moment. Consider salad <laughs> when he comes comes out of the car. Uh, to- Tony's quite overweight, but I guess it's it's, it's how they are all, all handling weight, weight at different, you know, uh, points. You know, Pussy is an overweight character. Yeah. Um, Bobby Bacala is a very overweight character. Tony's an overweight character, but Tony's the kind of overweight where it's, it's power. Mm. His size is part of his power. We'll yeah. especially see that when he is lifting up junior at the end of the episode with prodigious strength yeah um and yet uh yet he doesn't seem to like that quality in others i don't know just kind of a funny thing to notice (laughs) why don't you get off my car before you flip it over you fat fuck (laughs) (laughs) yeah i noticed that too and this scene is this opening scene with bobby is great it's really funny it has a light touch there's a lot of humor in it but of course it's ominous that they're surrounded by these butchered dressed pork parts in the store as they're outright threatening him. And there's an important dynamic here, I think, between Tony and Bobby. As Jordan referenced, probably Tony's power position is really what allows him to get away with these fat jokes. Because it's not until he drives away later on that (laughs) Bobby says, why don't you look in a mirror, you insensitive cocksucker? (laughs) It's just a great line. (laughs) And I think Bobby, I want to stay away from spoilers here, but I'd argue even in this episode, Bobby becomes more important. Not necessarily because of who he is, but because of the journey that Tony goes on in finding a greater investment, at least in Junior being well taken care of. Yeah. 
so Bobby, though goofier, fatter than Tony, is in some way not a version of Tony, but an extension of him. Yeah. I can't be with Junior. Let let Bobby take care of him. Mm. Uh, just a fun bit in that uh, that scene at the butcher shop. I think um, "Do Not Resuscitate" again. The title could be a Sopranos esque version of "Do Not Recite." Yeah. And Tony doesn't like Bobby's take on the uh, the quote. To the victor belongs the spoils, <laughs> <laughs> resulting in one of the best lines. Yeah, why don't you take your get out of here before I take your quotations book and stick it up your fat fucking ass. <laughs> Man, so good. And then we get. Um, I'm gonna move. On. I want to talk about the humor in this episode again. Mitchell Burgess, uh, Robin Green, and Frank Ranzulli. You know, there's gonna be two things: humor and great dinner scenes. We're gonna get both of those, and I want to get into it, but. I gotta drop in because there there is one little off of the the A B C plot structure. There is one little bomb right in the middle of this episode where we find out confirmed for the audience that Pussy is a rat. Yeah, the scene with he Skip. He is a snitch. Yeah, with Skip. And not only is he a, a, a snitch, we meet this character, the new character Skip Lapari. He's an FBI agent, and he's not like a tip. I, I, I for, for at first glance, you don't think, oh, that guy's a fed, but I guess that's kind of the point, isn't it? He looks like this fat, wise guy from from Jersey. So he looks he, like he could be an underling, right? Which when I, he picks him up from the chiropractor's office, maybe that's deliberate, right? Yeah. And so I, I I've watched this with people who are confused at first, like, wait, that's a fed? Oh yeah, but he's he's if he gets spotted somewhere with pussy it's not like oh yeah that's a fed you know so that's part of why this character was cast in this role and uh, this actor in, in in particular and um man this is a rough scene if you were rooting for pussy to not be a rat i think uh you know oof and not only that has is he a rat but he says the line to pussy you've been on our tit since 98 now there is an important thing to note here Pussy is also lying to the feds. He's, it's, we, we, he says, I haven't met with Tony yet. And so we instantly are like, oh, he's a rat. And then, oh, he's also getting in, in into a web of lies with the feds. So Pussy, in just this one scene, is in a really bad spot. Thoughts on this? Yeah, well, Skip has the number. He just doesn't know exactly how right he is you know he says we've had it before where someone thinks they can play both sides against the middle yeah so he knows what pussy could potentially be up to he just doesn't know that pussy has already spoken with tony and is in fact already up to it this unfortunately makes pussy a more endearing character he would be so easy to write off if we knew he was just fucking tony completely over but because we see the struggle because we see him trying to play the feds and play tony at the same time we think maybe he could come out of this and and figure out some way to get the feds off his back we just we just don't know you know it's going to make it more intriguing for us going forward because he has to fight on both fronts yeah this sequence is very interesting it's again got something of a light touch big pussy being uh dazed as he comes out of this surgical procedure is fun we'll buzz you honey buzz (laughs) all that stuff yeah and also just again this episode about loyalty, fidelity, these big Shakespearean kind of moments of betrayal and alliance are being played out in these oddball New Jersey chiropractor's offices or in somebody's Cadillac driving through a little township or along the turnpike. 
And also, as you mentioned, Chris, this is incredibly complicated. This is the reveal that he is, in fact, a rat. But as you said, he's lying to the FBI. Not only lying to them, he's telling them he hasn't even seen Tony yet. And he's yeah. back in the inner sanctum already. Yeah. He's having these high-level meetings where they're saying to Bacala, do this, do that, or else you're dead. So it's a big lie, it feels like. It's a very well-done sequence. Again, it feels like, again, a little bit light touch. It's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And we see there's a very nice brief moment at the end where we see, as Jordan mentioned, perhaps endearing Big Pussy to us even more, how he's conflicted about it. Skip is dismissive. Don't don't cry me these crocodile tears or whatever over this yuppie who thinks you're his errand boy. Big Pussy puts his hand to his mouth and just thinks for a moment that he's he's betraying this guy. He's known him 30 years. They're yeah. best friends. So, yep, really gut-wrenching reveal here. And um, yeah. <clears throat> this is going to drive a lot of the action going forward. So it's a crucial moment to mention in this episode. Moving on, though, we get a new character. You mentioned him very briefly earlier. We see Junior's attorney, Mel Voin, considering Junior's under federal indictment. It's not a, really a spoiler to say we'll be seeing more of Mel Voin going forward. Uh, but we have this really funny... Let's let's touch on the, uh, some of the humor in this episode because this scene is just so funny. He blows it with the ankle bracelet in front of the Honorable Judge Greenspan, uh, <laughs> who is um, Jewish, of the Jewish faith. And Junior kind of almost, I feel like, you know, there was a, a way for him to get out of this without an ankle bracelet. And he just oh, yeah. fucking, he ran his mouth. <laughs> uh, Melvoin's line I don't think we should let our shared sorrow or bias into, enter into this judge <laughs> very funny scene of course Junior in my mind uh, and much to what the prosecutor in the room also said evoking image of like um, in the movie you know the casino uh, when all of the mob guys start getting arrested and then they're wheeled out of the courthouse in wheelchairs with oxygen <laughs> tanks Junior is, and she says, you know, anytime we get one of these elder mafiosos on trial, they go to the same bag of tricks. And, uh, you know, just, I really like this scene. It's funny. It tells a good story. And uh, I just really enjoyed it. Any any other thing to add on this scene? Yeah, I think, I think Junior, it, it was clear Junior had it made until he had to go make that really off-color sort of joke about Nazi <laughs> Germany. Just, wow, read the room, Junior. Come on, man. Yep. Um, but you know, Junior, it's a, that's a character consistency. That's still good writing. Mm. <laughs> you know, he he can't play weak all the time. He's still got to be Junior Soprano. Yep. You know, it doesn't matter who's around. I I like that moment. I think it's a well earned ankle bracelet. Another uh, yeah. Go ahead, you go ahead, Paul. The, uh, <laughs> the way you guys have toyed with this, deconstructed it, it's great. The only thing that I would add is that it's a fun scene, and it's another. Sopranos-esque irony, I think, that Tony is getting out of jail while he's shackled with the ankle bracelet. He's getting out of jail on what seems like very clearly inflated medical issues. Because mm. the other times when he's not in front of a judge in the episode, we see him, he's still his cantankerous self. <laughs> uh, but it's an irony that all that leads him to the end of the episode where he actually does 
bust his hip. Yeah. <laughs> which is a pretty nasty injury. Oh, yeah. No, no. when he falls and lets out that, oh, your sister's cunt. You can't help but laugh because it's a great line. And, you know, I've heard similar things <laughs> from older Italian relatives. But uh, <laughs> it's also, uh, yeah, your, your sister's cunt, your sister's ass, your mother's ass. I've heard all that stuff. It's just uh, kind of part of the thing, I guess. But, you know, yeah, it hurts. That that's a, And that's not something... A, a lot of elderly people even really fully come back from too it's it's a serious thing to fall like that and break a bone at that age so yeah a lot of great we were talking about the humor and and junior uh, i got to mention this scene in the eye doctor's waiting room first of all brilliant setting for the plot movement of the scene because ultimately i was i was it just dawned on me watching it. it's like they need to do a payoff between a legitimate quote unquote construction you know worker and a mob boss who's got the union. And where do you do it where it won't be seen? In the waiting room of an eye doctor's office where people have like the yeah. big shades. They, they're having vision trouble. So it's a great way, easy way to slip something. There's also a lot of very funny lines. Junior's joke about the cataract. And <laughs> oh, yeah. The, and the, the Rinkin, Rinkin Continental. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't get it. He drives a Lincoln. So what? <laughs> Bobby just does didn't quite get it. Right at the top of the scene, Junior turns to Bobby and I think he says, "Did you see me on TV?" Yeah. And Bobby says, "You were on TV. What show?" <laughs> As if he did a cameo on like Third Rock from the Sun. He says, "What show?" And Junior says, "The Six O'clock News." He says, "Oh yeah, it's so funny." <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very funny scene. He has a nice, very. I, I've heard my grandfather before he passed have conversations like Junior had with the other guy in the waiting room, you know, about getting old and yeah. glasses and the frames. Just a uh, what a country, you know. Uh, just yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, the Sopranos, the, the Sopranos is unique too in exploring. You know, it's exploring aging as mm. much as it explores anything else. Um, for Junior and for Livia being our our central characters, there, these in some ways, uh, maybe I'm being too dramatic are people that weren't meant to get older. Junior probably would have been much happier being, you know, gunned down in some kind of firefight, you know. Having to suffer the indignity of old age does not jive well with someone who has so much dignity stored up inside them. Very well said. Mm. I like that a lot. We, again, we talked about it at length, so I'm just going to touch down on it here as we move through the episode, but we get this scene in the hospital room, another funny line uh, if I'd known you were going to get out so fast in this medical shit, I never would have talked to that calzone with the legs about Bobby and other fat jokes. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing in the food world more. A calzone with legs. Yeah. It's so good. It is very good. There's nothing in the food world more fattening in my mind than a fucking calzone. So the idea of just this big, it's it's great imagery, great use of food. Um <laughs> We get this uh, great dinner scene. Uh, we're gonna let's let's start dipping a little bit into this whole other thread we've barely touched on, which is Livia and Janice. Yeah. So leading up to the, this, this starts with them visiting. First of all, again, Livia cannot accept food at any point. Can you get me some ice? I mean, they can't expect me to eat this tapioca. <laughs> And then, by the way, this tapioca that she hates and can't abide is offered to Janice immediately upon entering the room. Have some of my tapioca. (laughs) 
Yeah, important to know, Chris. She also she ultimately gets that strawberry ice cream that she requests and then doesn't eat it. Yeah. <laughs> so there there is something up with food and Livia. That's a that's a big thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. She oh and, the, and we didn't mention this in the last episode. I don't think, but in the very first episode of season two, I think Meadow is feeding her soup, and she just pushes it away and says, "Let me die." <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Classic. Classic Livia. Classic. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, we are seeing, once again, we're getting to know Janice a little better. He, she has a great scene with Tony in the driveway when he's, what's he doing? Watering the driveway? I guess I've never yeah, had Yeah, he's a... washing the driveway, I guess. <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> My driveway is horrible, but I feel like just running a hose on it wouldn't help. But maybe because his is on a big slope, he can kind of push leaves down the hill with the, with, I don't know. That's not something I've done. Uh I think that's a Carmella thing. I think she's like, Tony, go wash the driveway. And he's just learned to not fight it. I don't know. Yeah, maybe she doesn't want him to smoke cigars in the house. So she tells him to go. <laughs> go do an outdoor activity. Go clean the yard or something. And I love when Tony is like, I'm selling Ma's house. And, and, and because he's like making, he, he put pitch, such a fit in the last episode about her ripping up that real estate sign. And then she says to him, what? you know, is obvious, which is, you're so left-brained. <laughs> the house is still for sale. That's a great line, especially from this character. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, she is, what's funny, too, is she is gaming him. She's just, like, completely playing it innocent and trying to, like, you know, work him. And, uh, you know, we go back and we get this dinner scene a little bit later on. She starts mentioning... Livia to Tony at the dinner table. He doesn't want to hear it. She's being very annoying. Keeps bringing it up. Um, While sitting in Livia's old seat. That's awesome. Oh, that's I mean, a great yeah. fucking point. That is not an accident. No, absolutely No, not. and I, I actually wrote down as I was watching that dinner scene, I was like, mm, Tony's not the only one that learned tricks from Livia. Janice is <laughs> definitely manipulates in almost exactly the same way. She mm. knows which buttons to push. She knows how to make you feel guilty, make you feel bad, learn inf- information in an oblique fashion, manipulate the children, uh, which she does to Meadow throughout the episode, pumping them for information, finding out what they can. Uh, these are all Livia's tactics. Janice mm. has also learned the worst from her mother. Very true. And she's employing it expertly, and that's what makes... I wrote later on, we'll get to this scene, I'm sure, in detail, but the last scene they have in this episode, I wrote, wow, this scene is fucking nutty uh, for a lot of different reasons, the way it's shot, the way it's written, but we'll get there. And so the next beat of this storyline is that Meadow and Janice are driving. Meadow got her driver's license. Two, two, two bits of information that are going to come into play later. Meadow has her driver's license... And AJ is doing a report on DNA, which seems like it's a little bit of a throwaway here, but that's going to come back into play much later. Genetics, baby. Genetics. Yep. Comes oh, back to yes. genetics. Oh, yeah. Very good tie-in. By the way, poor Hunter with the eating disorder upstairs. I, I don't know. I guess that was kind of a throwaway, but I, you know, she's, she's in the hospital, too. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And Meadow, I love that. The whole thing about trust and so many... Uh, Meadow's like, God, the trust in this family, whatever. And... Uh, everybody's lying and scheming and plotting even meadow schemed to yeah of course she'll let us drive to see grandma but she's going to visit hunter you know (laughs) and aj gets stuck with livia in a hilarious scene um but uh so janice is working meadow here to try to get information out of her uh what is my because she's been around you know janice hasn't been around for a while and she mentions that Mario Lasagna guy and Janice, <laughs> Mario Lanza. Mario Lanza, yeah. And Janice says, 
oh, I used to hate that shit. You know, all this, all the old music that Janice, uh, that uh, Livia would like. And then the very next time we see Janice, she's listening to that opera, and uh, and is just smiling. And pa- the Pavarotti, coming, yeah. Pavarotti, and the that's how we got our uh, episode title this week. Yeah. Would you like to talk about that, Jordan? Yeah, this this song, "Do Not Forget Me." I mean, this ties directly to the themes this week in terms of remembrance uh, of not forgetting the older generation also not forgetting about their values but uh, you know it's it's also about you know reconnection in not forgetting tony can't forget livia janice cannot forget uh the way things were uh you know it's it's this, this it's this song that's reconnecting you with your past and it's kind of it's kind of the underscoring for the whole episode in a way uh there is this longing for something that was lost uh, you know, at one point, uh, Livia has offered Meadow uh, a piece of jewelry. So you'll, you know, this this way you'll remember me. Um, I, I, you know, th- th- this idea of of the legacy moving forward is is clearly very important. And remember, Janice is playing this song to associate, uh, to have Livia associate with the past in which she used to enjoy music so much, and it used to, you know, tie into things they used to do together as a family. Uh, so there's there's all that going on. Mm. I was. Uh pretty moved by that moment even as dysfunctional as Livia can be I think because of what you just mentioned Jordan that connection to the past my parents are now at about 70 years old and I often find that connecting them to things in their past is a powerful way to make memories with them to talk about things that happened years ago and bring them back to an association with their youth in a much less serious way that's kind of what we're doing with the podcast is discussing this thing that was you know it's 20 years old at this point yeah and it has a lot of nostalgia for us as well it does it has nostalgia it has meaning i guess what ultimately pollutes this is that livia again to reference something that jordan mentioned about down neck even in her disordered sensibility she seems like in a particularly qualified position to call out Janice for what she is actually up to. Mm. You don't fool me, she says, in the climactic scene of their storyline. Yeah. Yeah. Calling her out for why she's really here. Very well said. I agree. And um, can't really add much more to that. I, I Very well said, Paul. Uh, the next beat, we see Janice... Smoking while dri- smoking weed while driving, uh, <laughs> which I don't think you can do no. even in Jersey in 2020. I wrote, <laughs> I wrote, pot good, pot while driving bad. Yeah. That's <laughs> that was yeah. that was my note. Funnily enough, though, uh, Janice just has to wait uh, 20 years from the time that this aired for pot to at least be legal, not behind the wheel, certainly, but uh, in Jersey. she talks with men. Yeah, she talked in New Jersey. We just legalized marijuana here in Jersey. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's been uh, very hard to be productive since then, but, <laughs> uh, but it's been much more fun. <laughs> but uh, it, it's a funny, um, funny juxtaposition, not just because the style of music that she's listening to is so radically different from what we were just hearing in the hospital room. But it's also no coincidence that the song is Mother and Child Reunion. Oh, yeah. Uh, as she's kind of celebrating what she perceives as a victory uh, <laughs> in, in, in her game on Livia. The lyrics are, you know, Oh, little darling of mine, I can't for the life of me remember a Saturday. 
in the course of a lifetime run. Just a, a fun little moment there, little little glimpse of Janice and her mindset going in. But Livia is not to be underestimated because AJ shows up at the hospital and in very AJ fashion, much in, in an almost an exact mirror of how he spilled the beans about the therapy in season one, spills the beans. Yep. First of all, very funny scene. She's admonishing Emerald Lagasse. Uh, he doesn't he, didn't even wash his hands. <laughs> well, it makes AJ eat these Italian candies that he doesn't have any interest in. Go ahead, take one. After he says, "I don't, I don't want, I don't like those Italian candies." Um, <laughs> oh man, it's just so fucking funny. And uh, but yeah, he spills the beans about the DNR because uh, she almost chokes on this cookie in yeah. an earlier scene, and the nurse has a conversation, and you can see the light bulb go off for Janice about the DNR. Yeah. Um, By the way, what a particularly low moment for AJ. I've never seen AJ stupider, I don't think, ever on the show than confusing DNA with DNR. Does that help you breathe? Oh, my God. Just, just, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) He's not a smart kid. It's unfortunate. Uh, Oh, that was unusually stupid, though. I, I... Uh, whatever like my god aj come on man well and it's another interesting example of i'd say a sopranos-esque quality impulsivity driving behavior and driving plot first of all tony seemingly out of pure frustration has essentially given up on the gambit that he's run for an episode and a half take the house Mm-hmm. out of my hands you guys go over there he has a really funny line saying it'll be like whatever happened to baby janice mm, over there yes. the impulsivity also drives <laughs> the plot because they're italian american they're having this argument at full volume and aj's standing in the kitchen getting some ice cream mm. and he overhears it yeah so it's again like presumably like an unseen moment in the first season when AJ overhears Tony and Carmela discussing his therapy, that he once again affects the plot in this way, going to spill the beans to Livia. Yeah, and it's so good that, like, they don't catch on. He's just getting ice cream. They don't think of AJ being there as consequential to what they're talking about, but, man, what consequences that has had, AJ overhearing things in the Soprano house and delivering that information to Livia. Yeah. As Jordan mentioned, some of these scenes, they play out, they feel credible and realistic, I think people ignore kids all the time. Yeah. Oh, 100%. To their detriment, you know? Kids are always... This is a general rule of thumb for kids, and I'm, you know, I don't, I'm guilty of this because I joke all the time, ah, kids are dumb. Kids are dumb. They're not dumb. Kids are generally... Even dumb kids like AJ are... I, I, they're sponging. They're hearing. They're mm-hmm. perceiving things. They're learning things. They're underestimated almost all the time. The, what, what kids can hear, what kids remember, what kids can do. And it's the same thing here. Uh, AJ has had catastrophic consequences for the Soprano family in, in just his lack of understanding and in what he's, what information he has put forth. Pretty good. And, and, and again, it happens here. Let's talk real quick. We're kind of reaching the end of the episode here. So let's. I want to hit a few more beats uh, a little chronologically as we race to the end here. A scene with a lot of gravity uh, than it perhaps would have before we found out Pussy was a rat. Is a scene of Tony talk in, with Pussy. It's the day of the bust up at the construction site. And uh, they're talking about how Tony's lamenting on how you can't get anybody good anymore. They're, you know, and uh, <laughs> Pussy's like, you know, I hope you don't see me that way, Tom. Right. And, uh, you know, you paid your dues. Yeah. 
as, just, as they are shortly thereafter approached by Sean and Matthew and they have to speed away. <laughs> yep. Yeah, oh, I love that moment because it's just a little touchdown. Hey, in case you forgot these dumbasses from the last episode, they're, yeah. they're going to be a pain in the ass going forward. I just love that they can't resist. They think, oh my God, Tony's there. Yo, we're going to make it. We're going to, they're, they're thinking they're going to be friends with him or something now. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, I, he just drives past him. We're supposed to be seen here, you fucking idiots, leaving him in dust. Now no. we look like assholes, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's too funny. Oh, the hits keep on coming with those two. Yeah, it's an interesting moment. It's a good scene, as always, between uh, Vincent Pastore and Jimmy Gandolfini in the car. It is also an irony that the way Tony's talking to Big Pussy, whether or not he's you know, deep in this denial about what's happening with mm. Big Pussy, what he suspects, he draws on their years of friendship and duty to each other as gangsters. You've done the work, you've paid your dues, mm. but we know that Big Pussy is at least in part acting against him as much of a lazy bastard as Bacala is. Bacala shows up and heaves great big breaths as he beats <laughs> down on some organizers. Yep. You know. Yep. Yeah. It's a cool scene. Um, I'm curious how the mob would deal with a situation like that in this present day when everyone has a cell, a, a high definition camera in their pocket. Yep. But uh, for the year 2000, this was a, a certainly a way to solve this, uh, this issue. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, then we move on and we get the whole business with the DNR and... Janice and Tony. Tony's struggling with the TV. He finally acquiesces to Janice. Just take her. And what is so fascinating to me, I want to get into this last scene eight with uh, Livia and Janice, is it's so oddly shot. It's oddly written in a good way. I, I don't mean this as a criticism. It's like J- Livia slipping into calling her, um, what, what's your, what's, uh, the name? Satimia. 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 Satimia, yeah, Satimia. Which is a name she's used before and uh, she's like saying things that half make sense, but half don't, but she's, she's still gaming because she, she lets it slip about the money that she's hiding. And that's her, that's her way to avoid the DNR. Janice has to keep her around if mm. there's a money that is buried somewhere in my memory. Now, where did I put it? Oh, did damn. I tell you? Yeah, exactly. So Janice, uh, looks back and I love that shot where, uh, it's like, um, Livia going tossed down the stairs in the fire is uh, the fire sign, and then we get like that. Oh yeah, on the on the sign. Yeah, yeah, that zoom out on <laughs> Livia's eye. Ooh, it's real. It's real nutty. Real crazy. Uh, but but it is odd. Yeah, but I love it. These are the two. I was you just watch the scene. And it's like ooh, these are the two biggest fucking schemers in television, and they're you know we're getting a sense of how much game Livia uh, uh, Janice has. We know how much game Livia has. Uh, so this is, they're, they're, they're setting up this kind of back and forth between these two. It's very fun. As you said, Chris, these are the two chief schemers on the show. Perhaps that's why they can't have a nor- anything like a normal scene together. <laughs> and here it's been ramped up. Also, you know, earlier in this episode, in that fun scene with Bobby Bacilieri, he says, you know, I inherited Junior... I don't see why you got to talk to me this way. I always liked you. Tony says, bullshit. But let's assume you do now. Whether or not that's a shrewd move on Tony's part, if he can actually trust Bobby, Tony has inherited 
his mother's cynicism, and he's brought it into the bunker style of running this family. And that's how, of course, Janice and Livia are maneuvering with each other. And I like the this last scene. I like a lot of these scenes. I also, I just made this note. I want to throw it to you guys because the big storyline with Masseron construction deals with, I guess, structural racism and black labor. And interestingly, Livia has two black nurses that we meet who are doing this labor of taking care of her. Mm. But again, in a kind of reference to something we saw last season, there are different versions of Livia. Yeah. And both of these black nurses get a much sunnier version <laughs> of Livia. Yeah. Where even her complaining about food, the young woman at the beginning thinks is just funny. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's definitely uh, that's definitely not accidental. You know, they 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 nail the casting in this show, obviously for the main characters, but for this this is a continuing thread throughout the whole six seasons. The pop in characters, the day players, the you know the uh, they're all cast perfectly. The casting on this show is excellent, and that's consistent, and that's, I'm sure that's purposeful, very much so, and evocative of the uh, Trinidadian maid that they brought in the, that <laughs> Livia abused in the first season. Yeah, yeah. That we're now seeing. Also, very funny that Livia wants to go back to Green Grove. Yeah. Uh, given that all that happened because Tony dared to move her into the nicest retirement home in New Jersey. Very interesting phone call here between uh, Livia and Carmela. How dare you call here? So good. What do you th- what do we think of this call? I I think I question why the phone call is made. Uh I guess it, we are to take it that Livia is going to work against Janice <laughs> in the same way that she has worked against Tony in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it actually ends up that, that Janice and Tony become parallel characters in that moment. Uh, Carmela, I, I wish Carmela hadn't hung up the phone. I was very, it's a very compelling conversation. I wanted to hear the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, telling, telling her that, that Janice is a snake in the grass. I mean, yeah, it's put Carmela on alert, even though she doesn't want to have that conversation. I, I don't know what business Livia thinks she has in calling Carmela. I don't know. She I love well, I have a theory. I but I love what Carmela has to say to her, which is your kids are all unhappy and Janice has no work ethic. It's like laying it out and um, you know, Livia going into of course her pity routine. I did a pretty good job, you know, and with two of them (laughs) did a pretty good job with two right yeah yeah. all of a sudden now because her enemy more directly is janice tony you know she does this with johnny boy all the time who they probably didn't have the rosiest marriage but oh he was a saint you know now that he's yeah uh my my thought in livia calling the house is is that now that she's in direct opposition to janice and she knows how manipulative they each know how manipulative the other can be if she can stir the pot and make Tony adversarial to Janice, then that's, I think, her aim. I think her aim is to get to Tony through Carmela to kind of maybe get to Janice on the back end. That, that's one theory, but I don't know. Paul, any thoughts on all of this? All interesting questions. I don't know for sure. And as Jordan mentioned, it kind of gets cut off because Carmela hangs up the phone. But again, I have this sense right at the beginning of the episode, that we're dealing with trust and loyalty and its various complications here. And it seemed to me what was 
one of the things anyway that was important about this scene was that in spite of the perfectly understandable reasons that Carmela doesn't even want to hear Livia speak, wouldn't Carmela, Tony, and other characters be wise to listen to Livia when she says that Janice is a snake in the grass? Mm. Don't trust her. Yeah. The problem is, is that Livia has, of course, demonstrated the same qualities. Yeah. So, yeah, Very that's awesome. what brings us to that sad moment. And, of course, Junior's fallen in the shower, and then we get this last scene, which is um, very touching, uh, I think, it, especially after all that's come. Well, we get the last scene with the, the Reverend, of course, where we get through. We talked at length about that earlier in the episode, but we get that last scene with the Reverend, and then we get this closing scene with Junior, where Tony is uh, concerned about him, and he seems to kind of slip out for a second. And we end the episode with Junior pleading with Tony to make peace with your mother, Please don't let me go to my grave with this guilt. And Tony telling him, you know, you're not going anywhere, you old fuck. And picks him up and carries him out into the shadow. I love how it's very... Oh, I loved it. Yeah, it's so good. It's very theatrical and kind of old old film style to that. There's just this drop off of light and he just carries Junior. And there's like, you can't see anything mm-hmm. beyond the sidewalk and just carries him into the darkness while... Um, the music plays. It's it's a really beautiful ending. Thoughts on the ending, and then if you want to go into any final thoughts on this episode as a whole, do not resuscitate anything we haven't talked about. Feel free. So just in, in commenting on that final scene, uh, it's so moving on the surface level, just exactly what it is. You know, Junior needs Tony's help physically and emotionally in that moment, and Junior is contemplating his mortality, and the thing he realizes that's most important to him on the way out is that this bridge between Livia and Tony is is put back together. Uh, so moving. And the physical act of lifting up Junior in that moment is, is so moving. A, a character that is so dignified and so badly doesn't want to be reliant on the help of others. And Tony telling him it's okay after all they've been through, after Junior trying to kill him. Uh, it just reminds us that there's something elemental under there and that family roots can go deeper even than betrayal. Uh, it's it's really some amazing, amazing stuff. Um, also, on a symbolic level, Tony literally carrying Junior, it's like he's literally carrying the legacy of his family, right? Uh, the Reverend James Jr. has just had to bury his father. In some ways, Tony is, you know, uh, bearing his own father in his arms. Uh, there's there's a lot. It's so loaded. It's It's very beautiful. To that point, Jordan, and then I want to go to Paul... It struck me, maybe this is something I'm reading in that isn't there, but one thought I had is that uh, Tony kind of carrying this, the older generation with him and having the strength to shoulder that while the rat of our show had just had back surgery and his back mm. went out. He's lost his spine. I think that's very deliberate. Oh, very good. Very good. You no, know? I, think, I think that's a great pickup. Yeah. And to pick up on what you guys just laid out, I completely agree. It it's, was and remains very moving to me as an ending. But as always on The Sopranos, it's richly complex. The setup for this last scene is, as we've talked about, going to that brownstone where they're having a memorial for the Reverend James Sr. And Tony and the Reverend James Jr. take a little walk. The son, the Reverend Jr., mentions that he's now feeling, quote, like an elder. The pull quote that we chose for the episode, the 
Last of the Older Generation dying off signals the beginning of the end for us, in effect. So it's interesting to me that even though there is this sense of family, there is Tony, I think, tending to that sense of himself as a good son, there is also something where he's hanging on and he says to Junior, let me tell you something, you old prick, you're not going anywhere. Mm. And Tony is not ready to be an elder yet, even though he has solidified this power. There's always something else happening, it seems. Even in that scene with the Reverend James Jr., when they're talking about how they're going to divvy up this money that they've made from this scheme, and Tony wants it going his way, 3-2. And part of his justification, even in this losing argument, is he says, don't forget, I still got to kick up to Uncle Jr. No, he does not. To the world at large, yes, Junior is still the boss. We know what Tony told Bobby Bocciolieri. Everything else that Junior owns, it's now mine. Mm. So these just justifications and questions of duty still underneath have more to do with, I think, self-preservation. So that was my reading of the ending. Excellent read, Paul. Very good. Great. Any final thoughts on this episode as a whole? I've got one. Um, you know, there's the scene in which uh, Janice is trying to coerce Livia into uh, living with her. And uh, Livia brings up in front of the nurse uh, or, uh, you know, the, the sort of the social worker there, you know, this idea that at one point when Janice was younger, she sold <laughs> her new ballet shoes for amphetamines. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought it was very funny, of course. Yeah. But like so many Livia moments, it's also very sad. Um, that uh, she will bring up these moments to use as emotional daggers against her children, and she has them at her arsenal anytime she wants to use them. Mm. Um, and also, it made me sad for Janice, because I was like, oh, that's a little tidbit from your past. You're a really troubled kid, huh? What the fuck was it like growing up in that house, you know? Since we're making fun of Janice at the end here, I do want to just say quickly, she references very shortly what her project is that she's working on, it's a video of some kind, and the title is Lady Kerouac or Packing for the Highway to a Woman's Self-Esteem. <laughs> so part of what we're clearly seeing here is that like a lot of the other characters, she's a scammer and often not a very good one, but the difference is only in what forum. Mm. The forum there is self-help. Or yeah. whatever it may be, it's just a scam and it's blatant. So I was just that, so her saying that line with full conviction was just very funny to me. You want some sausage, Paul? Hmm. Oh, that's right. You don't eat pork. Oh, in that way. Oh, I, I, oh! I, I get it. I got it. <laughs> hey, what did one prick say to the other prick? What's there to get? He's a vegetarian. <laughs> very funny. Very funny. Yeah, no, guys, uh, I, I, very well said, I love your analysis, I love the uh, final thoughts, I have one final thought, and one lingering mystery from this episode before I'll close this out for the episode, what did one prick say to the other prick? Come here often? <laughs> oh man, I had something so, 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 come on, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> very good, well, I like that, I like that, but it's very funny, very funny. Great episode. Do not resuscitate. It's a great start. And um, 
Next is Toodle Fucking Ooh, which if that's not one of the best titles in the entire series, I don't know what the <laughs> fuck is. So we're going to get to that. That's going to be uh, next time on the Sopranos podcast. Uh, and uh, we're going to meet quite a character in the next episode. You're all in for a mm. surprise, if, if for a, a delightful uh, shift in the Sopranos universe if you're unfamiliar with the show. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will see you for season two, episode three, Toodle Fucking Ooh. Sisters Cunt. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the sopranos podcast please subscribe to us on itunes spotify or google podcasts like us on social media facebook twitter instagram the sopranos podcast or sopranos podcast just on twitter and please give us five star review on uh, itunes it's very helpful if you don't want to give us a five star review rather than give us a lower star review why not just send us an email at the sopranos podcast at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to see out of the show Thank you so much, and have a good Sunday.